You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning to you. Let's um, let's begin with prayer. And if you have a like a way you can get to a, a Bible on a phone, that would be great. We're going to be uh, in Exodus today, and uh, uh, we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness to us and your son and for meeting us in this and the worship that we've already had together. And Father, I ask that during this time of teaching that you would help the teacher to be empowered by your Holy Spirit and that you would gather our hearts and our minds together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hello everyone. We're uh, I'm be- beginning a series today, and I and it's going to be a bit disjointed. So I think we have like a couple weeks and then a week off, and but we're starting something today on on the Ten Commandments. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I've um, I had an, had an encounter with a, with a former student of mine who's now serving a church in da- in the Dallas area, and uh, he's in an Anglican parish there, and we were we were chatting. And and he's done a PhD in in uh, early church history. Did something rather you know um, pretty particular on early early church Christology, and and, um, and he was like you know it's fascinating being in the life of the parish again outside of the sort of academic world. How important it's been in his own teaching life to return to what he considers to be first principles or basic things. And I I've I've, I've been ref- so for example like the Lord's Prayer and. Um, the basic contours of the shape of the Gospels. Um, what's what's at the heart of Paul's theology? Um, how does the Old Testament shape our understanding of the Gospel, and how does it continue to shape our understanding of the Christian life? And and I remember walking away from that thinking for immediately about the Ten Commandments, and I, I had this sort of moment. I was like, you know, Janelle, you've you've been at the Advent for. A long time now, becoming I think part of the furniture around here, and um, and it dawned on me like I don't think I've ever taught on the Ten Commandments. Like oh my land! So, the, and the, and you all know this. Right? If you even look at the back of our prayer book, for those of you who maybe come from other traditions in the Reformational world, say uh, any former Presbyterians today around. Uh, yeah, I mean, so those of you who come from the Presbyterian world, you might know the Westminster Standards or the Westminster Confession of Faith. Most of your standard confessions of faith within the Western tradition are going to have some sort of exposition of the Ten Commandments buried in there. Even someone like Martin Luther, who we're going to talk about some today because we're going to think through um, the ways in which the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, are part of law. Um, continue to shape and form what it means for Christians to live into God's call on them. And even Martin Luther, who in his sort of doctrinal side, was very clear in his understanding that the law itself does not pertain to our salvation before the Lord. On his pastoral side, when he's dealing with people and he's kind of training them in the faith, in his catechisms, for example, or he's trying to help people give a, get a grammar for what it means to be a Christian, he prefaces both in the larger his larger catechism and his shorter catechism, he prefaces his exposition of the Ten Commandments with words like these. These commandments are given to us so that we as Christians can know what it means to live a life pleasing to the Lord. So that, that came from our own Martin Luther. 
Um, so uh, as we sort of sort through this, the, the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments play that special role in the life of both Israel and the church that provides for us a form of existence that the freedom of the gospel allows us and encourages us and invites us into that form and mode of being. So there's the, we think about the gospel itself being the announcement of the good news of God's liberating grace in Jesus Christ. And the Ten Commandments or the law provide for us a form of existence that we're called to live into as sacrifices of praise, right? So that, that's kind of, and we're going to talk a lot about this this morning. Today's going to be a lot of throat clearing to kind of get into the exposition of the commandments themselves. But this is the question that I think that we're, that we're, we're, we're raising. Now, one thing uh, here, when we start talking about the Ten Commandments and the Christian life, that's, that's going to be the nature of our discussion over the next few weeks. Can I make one book recommendation to you? Don't, don't often do this. Um, but I have one book that I think, if, if you're wanting to read along with this, can I make a, a suggestion to you? Uh, Gilbert Mylander's book, uh, Thy Will Be Done, uh, The Ten Commandments and the Christian Life. Um, I, I read this book, maybe, it, it, was, it was one of those COVID books. Um, I read this during COVID. Um, I think it's outstanding. I immediately went from reading this to assigning it to a class at school. Um, Mylander, interestingly enough, is a Lutheran theologian, uh, thinking through the role of the commandments within the life of Christian faith. I think his first chapter is worth the price of entry on what does the law of Christ mean in the life of faith. So I think it's worth the price of entry for that. But he has chapters on marriage. We will turn to this again. Marriage, family, um, and then life, calling all of these um, bonds, or you might think in sort of covenantal terms. Um, so I, I, I encourage you to, if you're, if you're looking for something to maybe help you along the way, Mylander's book is, is worth the, the price of entry. Now, let's talk a little bit about um, the Christian life and what it means to sort of live into this. Um, it's worth remembering, I think, that the Bible doesn't come to us in the form of a neatly packaged doctrine of anything. Uh, now, that, that's a very kind of bold and harsh statement, but it just doesn't do that. Um, so, for example, if you think about our own tradition here in the Advent Church, the Advent, and this is, by the way, not sort of across the board within the Episcopal world or even the Anglican world, say, in the Church of England, but our, our church is a kind of historic Anglican church in the sense that it really takes seriously the 39 articles of religion. And those are buried in the back of our prayer books that are in our pew. So if you're, if you're coming to the liturgy that we shared together this morning, um, which was a, a, a Eucharistic liturgy, I think I'm assuming at 11 o'clock it'll be a morning prayer liturgy, the, the idea behind those liturgies was to provide, and I'm using this term sort of carefully here, a, a Catholic understand or a broad enough Catholic view of worship that um, was not overly particularized, that would be a kind of broad lane of Protestant Catholic faith. That's the kind of idea. But if you want to know what substantially certain things mean when we are praying together, so, for example, we will hear the law announced. 
Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Second part, love your neighbor as yourself. And then what's the response that we as a church give to that announcement of the law? Lord, have mercy upon us. Right? That's an understanding of our inability to relate to God in saving ways that are in accord with our biographies or our own personal stories. I mean, right out of the gate of our liturgy and time together, we are making an announcement and a confession that we do not relate to God in terms of salvation on the basis of attendance to and keeping of the law or moral commands. We say, Lord, have mercy. We recognize, and I just want to say this so clearly because it's so important and it's central to our faith. We recognize that faith and its saving character is faith because of its object. So when you're looking for assurance of your salvation, you're looking to plant your feet on a secure rock to give you confidence that you are safe in the hands of the Lord, the Bible, especially the Apostle Paul, is not going to want to leave you with yourself and your own biography. The Bible is going to force you to see your own story wrapped up in the complete and finished person and work of Jesus Christ. My, my, my biography is wrapped up in his. It's one of the things that has my affection still aroused, frankly, for the liturgy that we get to share together around here. Because every Sunday, we're coming together and we're announcing the gospel is not primarily about my individual story. The gospel is about the announcement of God's saving act in the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And I am drawn into the reality of that by the Holy Spirit to say, my righteousness, my security, my, my, my sanctification, my holiness, my future glorification, all of it, the, the sum total of Christ's saving work is safely hid, hid in Him. And I find the security and freedom of knowing that I am in Christ. I mean, if the Apostle Paul was going to take some sort of extraction from all of his works and offer us a tattoo opportunity... I say that because I've got students who get Greek tattoos all the time. I don't encourage this, um, but it's just becoming the thing to do. I've got one student that's got massive amounts of Greek on one arm. Of course, you've heard me say, I always encourage them. If you're going to slap some Greek on there, you need to be whole canon Christians. Let's get some Hebrew at least somewhere on the body. Um, uh, but anyway, um, but if Paul's going to give you a, an opportunity uh, uh, to, to, to get a tattoo, he's going to want you to say something like, in Christ, in Him. Okay, I do have a funny tattoo story about that, as, as an aside. Um, I had a, an undergrad at Sanford call me on the phone and said that he wanted to come by my office because he wanted to have a Hebrew tattoo that said, in Him, on his body. And, uh, and of course, I turned paternal in those moments. Are you sure you want to do that? You know, these things don't go away. You know, da, da, da. I said, but come on by, I'll kind of help you out. And he came by... And this is a classic moment. He wanted in him, right? This is a preposition. And I gave him some forms in the Hebrew. And he starts to walk out the door. And, and uh, he looked at me with all sincerity. And he says, now, I just want to make sure before I leave. The him that we're talking about is Jesus, right? And I said, well, y yeah. I mean, that's not how the prepositions normally work. But if it's Jesus for you, then it's Jesus. You know, go, go, go forth and get your body um, marked. Um, LAUGHTER so anyhow, but what's the point of Paul's theology of being in Christ? It's the liberation of, for, this is what Paul speaks about in Galatians, about liberty. It's the freedom that comes from knowing 
that our salvation, our righteousness is secured outside of ourselves. We don't turn to ourselves for security. We look to him for the security that comes from his finished person and work. And that's why we need to come to church every week. Because our tendency is to turn inward again and again. It's not an accident that St. Augustine and the Western tradition have defined sin primarily in terms of in curvatus in se, the turning in on the self. Left to ourselves and to our sinful natures, which we still have, we will turn in on ourselves again and again. And the power and the profundity of the gospel announced in the Bible is, you do not turn in on yourself to find security. You are released from the tyranny of yourself to see what Jesus has done for you. It's the objective character of the faith that's given to us in Him. That's crucial. And yet at the same time, The Apostle Paul can say things like Romans 12, verse 1, because all this is true. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies unto Christ as a living sacrifice. The same Apostle Paul that announces the liberating grace of Jesus Christ can then turn to those who he's writing to and say, Hey, Philippians 2, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. He was God, and yet he did not consider his godness something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and becoming a human being. Take that mind in you. Walk in the humility that Christ walked in. The the same Paul in Galatians of all books that can turn in the last chapter and say, hey, when you bear one another's burdens, when you, can I put it in terms of the Ten Commandments, when you love your neighbor as yourself, and God calls you into that mode of being, when you do that, and, and Paul is so careful here, you fulfill the law of Christ. Notice he's not saying you do it, The law has been done in its completeness, in its totality, in the person and work of Christ. He has done the law. This is the act of obedience of Jesus. He not only died for you, he lived for you. He kept the sum total of the law. You're not called to do it in the same sense that Jesus did for you. We're called to live into the fullness of what its intent actually is, to love God and to love your neighbor. So, to think about this issue here um, is to think about the law and the Christian in terms of a biblical and theological pattern. I wanted you to see this. In Romans chapter 7 this morning, and I, I, our time is going to scurry by here. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go to the guillotine over this, but I'm pretty convinced um, that the book of Romans is the signal book in the Pauline collection and all of the sort of ancient manuscript codices that testimony to this ordering as well, pretty convinced that Romans provides for us the theological lens by which the whole of the Pauline collection is to be read. Now, that this, there's people have written on this. I feel the same way, by the way, about Isaiah and the prophets. I feel similarly about Psalms and the writings. Um, so I, and, and by the way, Matthew and the Gospels. Um, so I, I think Romans' signal role is providing for us, in, in its own very complicated way, um, the, the lens, or, or maybe another metaphor, the grammar that we need 
to engage Corinthians and Galatians and Philemon and Colossians as we sort of move through the, the epistles. So I think Romans is the prince of all the letters. Um, and this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is, is the law sin? You know, far from it. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting the, if the law had not said you should not covet. And here's an important turn of phrase, verse 8. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, um, sin is dead. Now we're about to get into the weeds here, and I'm going to try to keep us somewhat above them. But Paul is holding together, un unlike few people could, some tensions that we probably ought not ultimately resolve. We might need to sort of just sit in them. And, and here are the tensions that Paul is living in. And by the way, these are tensions that are already present in the Old Testament too. This is not a novum. It's not a new discovery for Paul. These tensions that he begins to describe are Old Testament tensions as well. So here you go. Something like this, Romans 7. Is the law... Um, unholy. The, Paul, um, and you can't really get this in these translations, but Paul gives what I call as a, um, a heck no uh, Greek grammatical form. You just don't see it very often in the New Testament. It's called, no, this is going to be nerdy. It's called the optative mood. And, and you just never see it. It's, it's a binomial, it's outside the realm of possibility. N no way. That's why I call it the heck no uh, Greek mood. No, it's beyond possibility. Why can the law um, not be, unho be unholy? Because the law, especially given to us in the ten words, which we will get to in a second, is an extension of God's own being and presence. It's his own moral identity that's given to his people to live into. So here you have Paul saying very clearly, we cannot claim that Torah or the law is unholy. God is the source of that. Well, then what's the problem? The problem is sin. And the Apostle Paul can use um, sin, I think, in two ways. One would be lowercase sin, and we'll say sins in the plural, and he gives us an example of that. Thou shalt not covet. You know, we do it all the time, right? See what our neighbors have. See the success they're enjoying. See the happiness of their family and their children. And what do we do? We want that and we want it for ourselves. Um, we, we want to take. I mean, we're, it's, it's buried in us. Paul says, I wouldn't quite have known what that was, that lowercase s sin without the law telling me. But the Apostle Paul could also use sin in terms of this capital S sin. So that sin almost becomes a personified agent. Um, it, it, it becomes um, the, the opposite, uh, the, the, the great combatant against God and his ways. And sin, which entered into the world through human rebellion, sin, this personified agent, takes that which is good and holy and then uses it for the destruction of humanity. That which was given to us as a gift of life because of sin is unable to produce that in us. The law has no capability of producing its desired end in us. Why not? Because of sin. We are born in sin. We will die in sin. This is one of the things that I think we embrace around here, almost in bumper sticker fashion at the Advent. We are at the same time justified and sinner until the day we die. Right. 
So Paul gets that dynamic. But just so you don't, you don't think that that's merely Paul, um, you see this in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy, for example, speaks about attendance to the Torah or the law as the means of maintaining the covenant relationship with God. So that you have two ways open before you in Deuteronomy. The way of life, which is giving yourself to God and His instruction in the law. And then there is a way to death. And the, and the law is presented in this overwhelmingly positive way about the instrument that can bring life. This is how the covenant is maintained between God and His people. But what's the problem with Deuteronomy? The challenge with Deuteronomy is these books. Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. Israel's recorded history, which some scholars will will call a Deuteronomistic history. In other words, Deuteronomy provides for you the lens by which to read this history. This long history is a testimony to Israel's inability to attend themselves toward God's law. And that's why the prophet Ezekiel comes along. And in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 25, says something to this effect. God promised the law as your life, and yet it has now become the very instrument used to condemn you and to bring you to your death. So the tensions that you feel about the law and its holiness, and it's also, to use technical sort of Protestant terms, accusatory function, that's all wrapped up in the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, together. Um, so what do we, uh, how do we think then in terms of the law, in terms of how we relate to time? And, and this is, I think, really important. As we relate to time, Christians, and you know this, it's almost become a slogan, a cliche, Christians live in the overlap of the ages, right? We live in both the old age and the new age. Now, I grew, I grew up in a world um, where es- eschatology, or the doctrine of the last things, was a fascinating, scary, and complicated exercise. I remember being on an airplane about a decade ago, I don't fly well. I joke with people that I'm, I'm kind of Calvinistic, re- reformational on the ground, but I'm kind of Methodist in the air. You know, I don't know. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm flying at, I'm flying at 30,000 feet, and, and I'm never quite comfortable up there. And I look over, and there's the stewardess sitting down in her break time reading, you know, Tim LaHaye's Left Behind. And I'm like, not, not up here, don't read that. You know, not, not at this altitude. Um, so I grew up in a world of a very sort of complicated eschatological schema. You want to know the beauty of the Old Testament's eschatological schema? Here it is. You don't, you don't have to go to any graduate school for this. Here, here it is. Old age, new age. Right? The old age and the promised coming of the new age attended by God's Messiah who would bring God's kingdom to this world in its fullness. And what um, I'm stealing here from a from Tom Wright. Tom Wright says, and what um, Israel expected to happen at the end of time has actually occurred in the middle of time in the person and work of Jesus so that we now live in the overlap of the ages. We are in the season of Easter. Think about this in terms of Easter. We believe that we are already, are you ready for this, right now in the age of the resurrection of the dead. 
Why are we now in the age of the resurrection of the dead? Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, because Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of the age of the resurrection of the dead. So that we live in that resurrection of the dead. And we're caught in the overlap of both the promise of the kingdom being among us and it yet not being consummated in its fullness yet. We wait for the unveiling of that in time. So we are caught in the overlap of the ages such that um, our understanding of God's command, um, his calling to us to be to a certain form and mode of being, that too is caught in the overlap of the ages such that our old man right that those still that our sinful side that reality of us drives us again and again to our savior because we know we are unable to do it he's done it but he calls us to fulfill it in the loving of god and our neighbor and that's the living into the fullness of the resurrection of the dead that we have now in christ can i can i i'm going to give you a a million dollar term for this. The million dollar term is, I'm going to regret saying this in, in a half an hour, but here we go. Um, covenant ontology. And what we mean by that is a understanding of your being, who you are before God. That, that's the ontology language. The, the understanding of your being fully rooted in God's covenantal saving promises revealed to you in Jesus such that you right now in your humanity in Christ who's ascended and raised are complete you are justified you are sanctified you're made holy you are already glorified in a sense completely and fully in him because Christ is not bound to time or nor does he experience time like you and I do that is true that's who you are. That's the good news of the gospel that we announce, especially in this season of Easter. Christ is risen, and in your baptism, you have been marked with him and raised with him as well. That's who you are. And the Apostle Paul wants you to know that without any reservation. That is who you are. And because that's true, and here's the second part, because that's true, God calls you to be, to a mode of being, to act like what you already are. Not to make yourself now presentable, not to clean yourself up. That's all been done completely and fully in Christ. But to live by love and grace into what God has called you to be and do. And that's why we talk about repentance around the Advent as not a one-time thing, but a mode of existence. I live in a repenting mode of being, turning again and again to the fullness of what Christ has done for me so that it can liberate me to love God and to love my neighbor. Which takes us all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Oh, isn't that what we're supposed to be talking about? We have been, believe it or not, we have been. And I want you to see something here because this is so crucial to our understanding of the Ten Commandments. Notice in chapter 20 how the Ten Commandments begin. And I'm going to talk about this and then we'll call it a day. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There is a pattern. Even Think about this. Even in the Old Testament, there's a pattern where God announces His redeeming and saving activity before He turns 
to announce what he expects and calls us to be in response to that truth. Even in the Decalogue, I'm the God who liberated you from the house of slavery. Deuteronomy chapter 6, here they are on the plains of Moab, about to go into the promised land. They're getting the law round two. So Deuteronomy, right? Round two of the law. And what does Moses say? After he gives the Ten Commandments again in Deuteronomy, someday your children are going to ask you, what do all these laws mean? What's all this about? What's your answer to them? I just think this is so instructive. But when they ask you what the law is about, you say to them, we were slaves in Egypt, but God redeemed us. In other words, the answer that gives meaning and scope to the law, if I can put this in proper Christian theological terms, is the gospel, right? Um, This is why you can have someone like David in the book of Psalms, who in one place, say chapter 32, say chapter 51, lives under the overwhelming burden of the law. You read Psalm 32, and you will find a man who is under the burden of his sin. He even talks in somatic, bodily terms. My bones were breaking within me as I, as I held these sins inside of me and didn't confess them to you. The law and its commands weighed heavily on David in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 51. And the self-same David can say in Psalm 19, nothing is sweeter to me in the whole world than your law. It's better than honey in the honeycomb. It's sweetness to me. So we have to have some understanding of the Bible's character of forcing us into that, the reality of that tension. But there's a proper ordering to this. The gospel always, for Christians, comes first. Um, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If there's a bumper sticker from the minor prophets, it's Micah 6, 8. He has shown you what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. I mean, honestly, that's a kind of nice, uh, tote bag-sized version of the Torah. Love God and love your neighbor. Walk humbly with God and do justice with your neighbor. I mean, it's kind of the, the, the Torah given to us there. But what's often forgotten is the first seven verses leading up to that is Micah the prophet from God himself reminding the people of their story of redemption. Remember who you are. The gospel comes first, and the instruction or the commands of God are a form or a mode of being that God calls us to live into. And then with Martin Luther, we could even say, calls us to a mode of being that's pleasing to God. But all of that rests on the secure and immovable foundation that our salvation, our rightness before the Lord, our holiness before the Lord is all completely in Christ. So that even the good works that God calls us into are an act of his complete and total grace. We will never get to the gates of heaven and say, I'm glad you got me halfway there. I finished the rest of the race. The whole thing is complete and total in him. And he calls us by the spirit to live into that mode of being of what he's done for us. So with all that said, that was preamble, okay, preamble. Um, To the next time we come together, we're going to dive into the commands themselves. And I'll just let you know for your homework, command number one, you shall have no other gods besides me. That command is not one among ten. That's the principal command by which all of the others are to be conceived. If that falls apart, that's the one Jenga piece that causes the whole thing to crumble. Everything is built on 
loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So Lord, as we enter into this series together, help us, I pray, uh, by your grace to, to understand, um, give us humility, Lord, to, to listen and to read and to think and to pray well. And Lord, I pray that you'll give us the joy of knowing uh, that you've called us, O oh Lord, into this world um, as priests, as the kingdom of God in our midst. Um, release us into that, Lord, as individuals and as a parish, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.